Welcome to Free For All, an episode-by-episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner. Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media, and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. Welcome back. Now, I swear to God we're going to get this done this episode. There will not be a part four. We're going to do it. We're going to press on. So uh, welcome back and let's, uh, let's talk more fallout. Chris? Yeah, I just want to go back to what Rob Fairclough said in the previous episode um, when he was talking about A Day in the Life mm. and the links with The Prisoner. And we talked about in the last episode, The Beatles with my appalling impressions. of um, <laughs> Superb impressions. Oh, you're too kind. But... Um, the prisoner itself, not so much fallout, although, uh, as Rob argues, is the case. I think the prisoner itself is a little bit like a day in the life with the, these disparate elements. You've got the main melody, I read the news today, oh boy, kind of thing. Then you've got the uh, the musical orgasm. Yeah. Well, it does. That's, that's how McCartney described it, as a musical orgasm, which kind of brings the middle section into it, Yeah. which is the, you know, woke up, got out of bed. And then you've got this ethereal piece of the ah so that you've got arguably four sections it's the first rock opera (laughs) you've got four sections um which come together to become a day in the life Mm. and i think the prisoner is very much like that you know you've got this idea this idea about the individual um about society about um place in society about bureaucracy uh, from a personal perspective You've got the spy tropes, you've got the press, the technological prescience as well. Mm. You've got all these separate elements brought together to become one. And I think what Rob said about A Day in the Life applies to the prisoner generally as well. Let's talk about some of the songs sure, sure. within this episode, because there was nothing... Composed for this episode specifically. No, this is this is, this is chapel music having chapel a, having, having having an absolute field day. So I think it's it's worth giving that um, giving a little bit of kudos to Eric Mivel's work mm. throughout the prisoner on his selection of music. Yeah, yeah. And going to the chapel library and having to listen to all these songs and say, yeah, that's, that's the one. I mean, it happens all the way through. I remember uh, Dance of the Dead mm. had an enormous amount of chapel music on mm. there. Space. There was something called Spaceways. I remember sort of checking out. Because, of course, you just think, well, it's music by Ron Grainer. But yeah. uh, every now and then you think, well, that doesn't sound very Ron Grainer-ish. And it never is. So no, it's, it's, no. It's, a, it's not just in this episode, but it's very concentrated in, in this yeah. episode. And then, of course, the famous one in this episode is The Rag March mm. by Jack Arrell and Jean-Claude Petit. <laughs> It sounds a bit like Badfinger mm-hmm. or just that specifically 1968 period of Beatles-ness. Mm. I'm, I'm, I, can't remember, I can't remember which song it is, but that's almost like a, like a slight steal. Mm. It, sound, it even sounds like McCartney on it. Yeah. Or the way they kind of, you know, how s- songs sounded in 
specific, not even sort of years, but months of yeah. years. If it was on a Beatles album, it'd probably be on Magical Mystery Tour. But yes, exactly. Yeah. It's got that almost like... Which is um, ironic, because so was All You Need Is Love. Yeah. <laughs> on the, well, it was an EP, wasn't it? Not it was, an, yeah. uh, an LP, but even so. I've got a quote here from a, a review, and it says, I have come to the conclusion that Fallout was part two of the Beatles' Magical Mystery <laughs> Tour. <laughs> because... Given that some context, I think that was broadcast on Boxing Day 1967. 19... Yes, it was. In, in black, black and white. <laughs> and it's, of course, when you, if you've seen Magical Mystery, it's an explosion of colour. Yeah, yeah. And psychedelia. You've got a life, the only performance of I Am the Walrus. Your mother should know all these kind of elements. You've got the, the, the dwarves, you've got the strong men, you've got the... the weird spaghetti shoveling Which apparently scene. was a Lennon dream. Yeah. It, it's completely incoherent, makes no sense whatsoever. And people were like, what is this rubbish? Yeah. You know, the songs are great, but what the hell is going on here? The, but it was someone in a way, kind of, they stopped being mainstream. Mm. Magical Mystery Tour, Fallout, these were both... They were both mainstream, yeah, on mainstream channels as well at prime time. Well, McCartney reckons that uh, Magical Mystery Tour is held up as a as a great art film. Apparently, Steven Spielberg, Scorsese's kind of championed it as well. Mm. What it was, it was avant garde. It mm. was, um, it, and, and in a way, you kind of think, well, it's not Herman's Hermits doing this. This is no. the Beatles. There's, yeah. there's obviously something going on here, and it's worthy of examination. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly the same way with The Prisoner. This obviously isn't just some thrown together bit of uh, meaningless psychedelic nonsense. Mm. There's something going on here. I, you know, I have, I kind of struggled a bit with Magical Mystery Tour mm. in that respect. I've, I've never really given it the good, uh, a good old decoding. No, no. Uh, but I just love the song so much yeah. anyway. And, and the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. Yeah, as well. And, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Which one did they do? Death Cab for Cutie. Yeah. Which, of course, then became a, a band. A band, that's I the know. name from that, didn't they? And they're, well, actually, interestingly, that's the album of theirs, Gorilla, mm. which is brilliant. There's some lovely stuff on that. But the first track's called Cool Britannia. Ah. Which... Uh, became Britain, a bit of a slogan, Brit- didn't it? Which Britain became yeah. in sort of 97. But because they were shown on, on mainstream channels to mainstream audiences, mm. inevitably, something like this is going to confuse and infuriate. Mm. It's basically because they've been shown to the wrong audience, you could argue. I mean, it may sound like a slightly snooty point, but it's kind of, if somebody's, I mean, I th- apparently after the Magical Mystery Tour, the next thing was a Norman Wisdom film. <laughs> <laughs> I checked the TV listings yeah, for that day yeah. once. Was like, hey, I think he film where he fell off a ladder. Ah. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But if, if you're going to show something like that to an audience that actually would rather be watching Normal Wisdom, they're going to go nuts. Within that audience would have been people who kind of, well, that, that was intriguing. And so the legend grows. But, you know, 60, we're coming up to 60 years I know. since this came out. And I think you get, you get to a point where you think it's inarguable. It's lasted. It's, and it's got better. Questions have never been answered fully, and they never will. But you can just get f- fascinated by by looking into this, and and it, it, it's it's a time it, you can now as you said this is a timeless piece of art. And I know one of your favourites is the September Ballad, composed by Gary Bellington, uh, and that's from the Chapel Library. That's Dance and Mood Music, Volume Three. <laughs> Track 14. Available here from KTL. Yeah. Send in for regular payments. I mean, that that's a delightfully sort of, it's almost like a Mike Oldfieldy yeah. vibe, vibe to it. Very specifically 68, that. Yeah. It's of its time. 
It's it's no, but it's of his time. But it's also, I mean, I think Maivor was saying one of the reasons he got all he needed is love. He didn't think it would date, mm. and that again, it's specifically very late sixties. But it's it's a kind of very nice. It kind of pull it pulls you in. Yeah. It sort of sets the scene. It sort of does exactly what it's supposed to do. But it's a it's a, it's a it's kind of a strong piece. And they haven't dated either. I mean, I yes, don't think they, no, do, I, they do sound sixties ish. But do you think sometimes things go through a process of dating, and then once they get through the the yes, dating definitely. thing, they suddenly become just kind of evergreen. Well, look at ABBA. Yeah, and in the in the eighties, you couldn't listen to ABBA because no. they were so seventies. It was de, de rigueur. It was, it was de trop. <laughs> yeah. But then the um, in the in the nineties, you couldn't listen to anything eighties because mm. it was just appalling. It was just they have to go through this was, cultural yeah, void this kind of, and come out <laughs> the other side, don't they? The, yes, it's like this kind of semi. What would you call it? A semi-permeable membrane, yeah. to sort of get, cult, cultural membrane to get yes. through, and suddenly you can, all you can hear is the, the melody yeah. and the strength of the songwriting. But I think with the Beatles, I mean, obviously, if you listen to the first, uh, you know, the, the first maybe four or five albums, up until you get to Rubber Soul, they're all kind of classic rock and roll songs. There's not a huge. I mean, this you can tell the songcraft is a bit better, mm. but there's it's just a standard, almost like Mersey beat sound. Yeah. Yeah, but then you get to Rubber Soul, you get to Revolver, and, and it, it starts all to evolve. Just changes, yeah. You've got competition with Brian Wilson in the states. The Dylan, you know, they release um, Revolver. Sa- he yeah. releases Pet Sounds. Yes, and then they release Sergeant Pepper, and he's like, "I give up." Yeah. <laughs> and Dylan's there doing Highway sixty one. Suddenly, John yeah. Lennon starts stopping. He doesn't write about girls anymore. He's writing yeah. about sort of. Deep, deeper things. Deeper things, man. But um, hey, John. But he's writing about poetry, man. <laughs> Put it into your lyrics. It was like all well, that kind of conversation, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was wonderful. Hey, also, take a Turk on this. The Beatles themselves probably went through a period of oh god, you still listen to the Beatles? Probably up until mm. like the late seventies, mm. there would have been the sort of uh, oh god, it's just so sixties, isn't it? Yeah. And then uh, as soon as they burst out, and it was like no, 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 no. Well, look at look at the song. Um, all the Young Dudes mm. by David Bowie, famously covered by Mott the Hoople. Yes. And they talk about he never got off on that revolution stuff. Yeah, and the London Calling was um, ribbing it. Mm. Didn't somebody say that one of the Sex Pistols got fired because they said they liked the, the Beatles? The Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, I mean, maybe at the time. I mean, in, in uh, Eric Mivel's book, it talks about his, his career, and but also ha- it's kind of interspersed with editing tips. Mm. Sounding that was quite nice, but he talks about having that conversation with Patrick. Patrick saying, "You know, about, I want some music here," and they're, they're talking about the Beatles, uh, and he says that he's happy that the Beatles haven't proved him wrong mm. in, in being anachronistic and in, in being timeless. Yeah, you know, it was a good. I mean, if that had been, I don't know, uh, uh, Keith it, West, teenage opera, or something, <laughs> so, which is so nineteen sixties, isn't it? Or Summer or, Love type. I'm song. into something good by Herman's Hermits. Yeah, or um, what was it? San Francisco flowers in your hair. All that kind of stuff. That's like whoa, of its time. Yes, that was dating as you were listening to it. Yeah. The other thing I found interesting from Eric Marvel's book was that he talks about the other song that McGowan wanted. So he he has dem bones, yeah, or dry bones, depending on which version. Yes. you listen to. But he also wanted Red Red Robin. You can know, you, when, the, you gra- when the Red Red Robin goes bob, bob, bobbing along was supposed to have featured in this episode as well. Is there a particular significance, do you think? Okay. I'm unaware of I'm the lyrics, not, so. No, I mean, in, in Mivel's book, he prints the lyrics to Dembones and he you know has the lyrics to... Um, and McGowan was quite keen on looking at the lyrical content of these songs. And, of course, Dembones, as, as we've discussed, there's so many ways you can interpret the yeah. use of that song. 
But imagine if Red Red Robin had appeared in the episode. I'm not sure where. I thought, do you know, do you know what? Do you know what, do you know what the, this episode's weird enough as it is yeah. to be stick with. But it's a very childish song, isn't it? I think Frank Sinatra did a cover of. Um, Would it have been Red on Robin? one of his many splendid Christmas albums? Possibly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you listen to him singing those Christmas albums, you can just yeah. picture the gun on pressed to the back yeah. of his head. <laughs> but, of course, as, as we discussed a few podcasts ago, he wanted Strawberry Fields was going to be the Yeah, the I'm glad he didn't. Yes. Because it's not really even an allegorical song. It's such a specific... Uh, I mean, it, I mean, the, his Strawberry Fields could be anybody's Strawberry mm. Fields and stuff like that. But the, at the same time, it's... There is, there is something interesting about Strawberry Fields because it's actually two songs mm. stitched together. And I don't mean in the way that A Day in the Life is. I mean in the way that they recorded different versions of it. So there was a version, a slow version with Lennon on acoustic guitar, and then they did a heavier version, and they did all these different takes. And he's, Lennon is sat in the control room with uh, George Martin. This is the, how the story goes. And he's like, George, I like that one. But I also like that one. You know, like one of the Aldi adverts. <laughs> <laughs> And George's like, well, well, very good, John, but, uh, you know, the problem is that they're in different keys and in different tempos. And John Lennon goes, yeah, but you can fix it, can't you, George? And walked off. And that's apparently how the story went. And then George Martin took the two elements that Lennon liked, slowed down yeah, one, sped yeah. up the other, so they matched in tempo and key, and luckily... And you can hear the join. Yeah, I saw, I saw that on, it was a South Bank show mm. for the 25th anniversary of um, Sergeant Pepper, mm. which would have been the 25th anniversary of the prisoner as well. It mm. was, I can remember this, yeah, George Harrison talking about, I remember the toilet paper in EMI had EMI printed on every piece. <laughs> <laughs> and George Martin there, so yeah. his boys used to come up, yes. come down wreathed in smiles. Yes. <laughs> Bit of horse playing. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I remember. And also, I mean, there's on the anthology, mm. the way they edit it, they have the whole sequence of takes. So you can hear the evolution of the song. Yes, yes. Going from the acoustic to, the, to how it finally mm. ends up. When he told me that he was thinking of using strawberry, I was picturing it over and I thought, this doesn't work really. But I think there's a nice parallel there. We've got someone like McGowan, who is the Lennon, mm. uh, talking to people like Tomlin and Mival and Champan mm. and saying, this is what I want, and they're kind of like, okay, how do we do this? <laughs> you know, how, how do we do this? And finding ways to fix problems. Yeah. For this, this creative genius. Yes. That's always, that's always the way, isn't it? I mm. think – I thought I'd just – it's a slight digression, but I've always thought creatively, when you have to overcome obstacles mm. to, to secure a result, um, you always get an amazing result. Well, look at – I mean, that's proof in the pudding with Rover. Yeah, of course. I mean, mm-hmm. and it, how the hell are we supposed to get out? Oh, what's that up there? But, um, I mean, a case in point for me mm. would be the Matrix film, mm-hmm. the first one, where they, they didn't have – nobody knew who – they'd only made Bound. They didn't know who, who are these people. Everyone was turning them down. Will Smith said no. Sean Connery mm-hmm. said no. They only had a limited budget. And so they had to work their way around sort of trying to create these amazing effects and all that. But it was – they had to sort of find ways to do it. They had to mm-hmm. go through the mountain, over it, around it. But for the second and third one, it was basically here is a blank check yeah, with a, an unlimited amount of money yeah. to spend on this. Which is the curse. It is. And it was like, uh, well, I think we should do this. Okay, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. No thought when it, it – there was no sort of a – what if we trying to do it a different way? Uh, and it, you always get a better result when you've kind of – that's why some of the Roger Corman films are so 
great, mm. even though you can tell the budget was in the hundreds of dollars. Classic Doctor Who is an example of that. Yeah, you have yeah. to rely on storytelling and performance. Yeah, you can't. You can't. I can't have what I want. So mm. how am I going to get close to the result that I want? But it just proves that if you've got a good story, good actors, good dialogue, good idea, good conceit, so much stronger than all the periphery, visual and special effects that could go with it. What's that film, The Day After Tomorrow, 2012? Yeah. That's a clear example of that. It's like where the technology takes over and the dialogue and everything else suffers. Yeah, they spent all, yeah, all the money and all the time and the creativity spent on these big special effects mm. sequences, strung together by a plot that you can't remember. Yeah. Because it, I, 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 because I don't know, I can't remember. It's all style, no substance. I can barely remember who was yeah. in it. But The Prisoner is style and substance. Yes. So it hits, it's got a lovely balance of the two, isn't it? Yes. The marrying together... There's, there are so many reasons why we're still talking about this, and that's that's one of them. Yeah, you know, obviously, initially they had a lot of money, uh, so that it kind of was less of a problem. But nonetheless, yeah. they had to overcome. I mean, obviously, problems of their day. They didn't have CGI. Let's let's make Rover. It's oh, yes. it, it physically doesn't work. Oh yeah. God, right? You know all these things. I know we've alluded to Plato's Republic. And the reason I, I, I mean, I'd never heard of this. It was only when I started doing my teacher training. This was like, yeah, you've got to read Plato's of the Republic. I was like, oh. Nice tie. Why? <laughs> it's all Greek to me. <laughs> hey. Ba-dum. Um, but what's interesting is, is if you start reading Plato's Republic eh, with your prisoner head on, you start making all these fascinating connections. Go on. So the first one is Plato divides the soul. Into three parts. He divides the logisticon, which is reason, Thyamides, the spirit, and the epithymeticon, which is the appetite. Plato said that even after death, the soul exists and is able to think. He believed that as bodies die, the soul is continually reborn in subsequent bodies. So you've got the, this is called the tripartite. Mm. So in the Republic, Socrates suggests that they use the city as an image to seek how justice comes to be in the soul of an individual. The city as an image. Mm. The village as the microcosm. This, I know, this, this is gold. There has to be a link here. The guardians are mentioned. Mm. Now, that's a term from the prisoner. The guardians spend the next 15 years of their lives as leaders trying to, this is a direct quote from the Republic, lead people from the cave. I know. No, no, I can see your face, the smile creeping up your face. No, no, it's a, it's a smile of it's war. Amazing, it's amazing, isn't it? It's almost like a sort of a, a, prou- a proud podcast partner salu- <laughs> saluting the hard, diligent work. And there's more. Socrates creates an analogy between the parts of the city and the soul, which is known yeah. as the city-soul analogy. He argues that psychological conflict points to a divided soul, since a completely unified soul could not behave in opposite ways towards the same object and at the same time in the same respect. And we see that, don't we, in Fallout? Mm. These, uh, these three elements coming together as one yes, to, to escape mm. or as a unified soul. That was kind of a point I made, but much okay. less. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the final one I've got is, having established the tripartite soul, Socrates defines the virtues of the individual. A person is wise if he is ruled by the part of the soul that knows what is beneficial for each part and for the whole. Courageous if his spirited part preserves in the midst of pleasures and pains the decisions reached by the rational part and temperate if the three parts agree 
that the rational part lead. Well, that's what I think. Yes. <laughs> but you can see this. that's just a little selection of quotes from the Republic. McGowan must have read yes. the Republic, understood it and applied this. He's actually saying, you know what, I'm going to get a little bit of Plato into this as well. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think on that... On the foundation of that mm. one theory, I think the, the, you can just go back to the beginning of Fallout and watch it a completely different way. And that's what's so good about The Prisoner, though, isn't yes, it? You yes. You can watch it and think, I'm going to watch this, I'm just going to watch it this time as a spy drama. Yeah, you, I mean, you can goes back to what Alison Murray was saying about uh, the, the fact that, that there aren't any dolly birds. Mm. There's no sort of... Well, actually, I mean, Rick Davy was saying he's he's not particularly nice to women. No, but he's not particularly nice to anyone. No, no. But it's part of his character. But the, you don't have that casual sexism of the nineteen sixties. Mm. So, to the extent that you, you don't have some of the stuff you from back then, you have to enjoy kind of ironically. Mm. You have to sort of uh, part of you. It's enjoyable, but uh, it's, it's glad they don't have this. Maybe, the prisoner, you can just watch. You don't have to have any of that kind maybe, of ironic prism. Yeah, but maybe we've been reading it the wrong way in terms of we're saying that uh, McGowan is overtly moralistic and prudish. You know, I think maybe that if you look at this character as logic or the way he operates is through logic, not like yes. Mr. Spock, but, you know, he doesn't display any real human empathy. fallibility of human. I mean, obviously anger is there, but there's the sexual side isn't there. Well, the way no, he treats no women. I, no, it's I mean, he was, logic. It's yes, it's logic, but it's he's. he's I think number six is a, a moral character. Mm. I think that's almost how they get him in the end. They but human of, beings, uh, there's the self-preservation element as well. So it's logic through self-preservation. Yeah, but I mean, the, what I mean, we've said this before. He usually they usually try and get him through putting a woman in jeopardy. Mm. Uh, which he won't stand for. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much just his kind of knight-errant um, part of him. It's just that he's a moral, he's, yeah. he's a moral character. He, he won't his just... virtue ethics. Yes. And also utilitarianism. Mm. You know, he's, if, if he has the opportunity, I mean, you see the utilitarianism in It's Your Funeral. Yeah. You know, why does he care about these villagers getting punished? Yeah. But well, he does. I'm still trying to work that out because it, yeah. se- it seems like a weird plot point in that, in that episode. That sits but, yeah. nicely within utilitarian ethics. You know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Gem. Gem, yes. <laughs> Which is where Star Trek <laughs> ripped yeah. it off from. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it could be that he is playing the, you know, philosopher king. Yes. You know, he is the leader. He, he's shown himself to be a leader. And we talked about, from Plato, talking about the gymnasium and the martial arts. <laughs> Yeah. Which we see. He yes. builds his own gymnasium. We see Kosho. You know, I know these are, you know, there's, I, I think this is very Plato led. He's trying to be the best human being he can be using Plato's guidebook. Yeah. I would just, but have we really moved on since well, then? Well, yeah, it, it goes, goes back to this, this discussion of um, how far have we really moved on? Are we deluding ourselves that we're better? When you, when you actually start to read, I mean, I've, I've been getting a little bit into sort of Marcus Aurelius. Mm. Um, yes. Who is just an absolutely fascinating... I've got one of the books. Yes? Yeah. You've got the sequel? I've got the one with all the... <laughs> no. no. Because um, he was a, a warrior king, wasn't he? He was, but he was a, a, a stoic. He was... one of the but points... his, his quotes, his... It's a guidebook for life. Yeah, and it, it, for really effective, practical... None of it is trite. It's deeply... Deeply, uh, not, none, of it's, none of it's complicated, but it's from a specifically moral point. It's, I mean, I mean, he kind of read about the stuff he, he, he got us some 
a little bit of uh, sacking went on <laughs> under, under his under his reign. But this is genius. Why is why is nobody mm. this bright now? This is two thousand years ago. Yes, and of course, all the philosophers we could list these these they were wearing togas, mm. walking around in sandals. But I mean, as you say. They still had central heating and stuff, but but it's almost like the, it's like a Flintstones episode. Yeah. How we picture this, we 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 delude ourselves at these. We're thinking these people is primitive. Mm. They were primitive at all. We we've been to, in some ways they were more civilized than we are. Well, we're quietly regressing for yeah. for two thousand years. So back to the episode, mm. and we're at the stage of violent revolution. I'm going to start with a quote from Alexis Canner, okay, who played number forty eight. Canner was having a conversation with Patrick apparently, and said. Pat, isn't this a pacifist program? <laughs> After seeing the machine gunning of, uh, of of these people, he said, "Kit, do you want to keep coming back here month after month?" <laughs> McGowan then went on to say that he just wants to get out, and he uses a technique which he hadn't used before, which was violence. Which is sad, but he does. Yes, and speaking in the um, French book which is, I know is one of your favourite tomes. Yes. One of the other quotes from McGowan was, there comes a time when rebellion is necessary. So mm. we've got some food for thought there for well, this section. Yes. Well, I just want to go back to one thing that I, I kind of missed. Well, I misremembered, mm. to use the uh, modern political parlance. When I first, when I was, I went back to, to watching this, and I, thought, oh, I remember the bit where number 48 and number two are in their test tubes. Mm. But they're not test tubes. The closest thing they are is more like torpedo tubes. Mm-hmm. And if you kind of remember the way that they're strapped to the, the, the – there's a sort of clip in the same way that you would attach a missile mm. as they're sort of lowered down. And it kind of goes back to your theory about the, the, the Freudian aspects of it. These are different parts of the personalities. When they're sat there in their tubes, they're still sort of yammering away. Yeah. They're still being the element of personality that they are. Just, But basically they're weapons. Mm. And when number six breaks them out and they go out and start picking up guns uh, and they become once again a single entity, what do they do? They, they, they go on the attack. Mm. They're weaponized. And I just suddenly thought, well, that's a nice touch. I mean, Jack Champion's design of, of, the, of, of the cave, it's, mm. there's a, an element of spoofery mm. from, you know, it's, there's touchstones of you only live twice inside mm. the volcano. You're inside the cave. There's yeah. a huge yeah, yeah. rocket front and center. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's that military aspect of the way that they're tied. They're sort of lowered into the basically like a bullet going into a chamber. Yeah. And then, yeah, here we are. We're picking up guns. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. I know he said that rebellion is necessary. I'm not sure whether he – because when he was talking about, was it Warner Troyer? Mm. And, he's, and then they pick up guns and it's violence, which is sad. Mm. I, think, I, don't, I don't think he rewards himself for this. I think he's aware of the catharsis. And it's and it's a good, obviously it's a good way to end. Yeah. You can't just have them if you just walked out. Actually, I'll take option B. I will leave. Yeah. Oh, well, that's the end of that. You know, I'll you wipe kind of this place off the face of the <laughs> earth. <laughs> yeah, he, it, it is. He, he needs to just escape, mm. and it is still an entertainment show. Mm. In fact, it's strange how it actually almost remembers that it's an entertainment show in that sort of whole section mm. with the choppers. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and the and the countdown, and it kind of sounds very Jerry Anderson, doesn't yeah. it? I don't know. I, I, I get there's an element of that he punishes himself in the end mm. for this. He does. You know, I don't want to say it's a pacifist show. It almost, it almost. In fact, every time he does resort to violence, he in the series, yeah. he ends up losing. 
we look at this killing because that's the obvious semiotic, but maybe it's more a case of you're kind of neutralising the elements of your personality that are holding you back. Maybe it should be looking at that sequence as neutralising rather than as, you know, as killing or murder. Yeah. Well, I suppose, I mean, if you think about the way we're analysing number two and number 48, they're, they're, they're almost like not real people. No, no. If they're the, facets of, of Six's personality, yeah. then so are everybody else. Yeah. Or are the Assembly Society in general? You know, does the president represent society or is or, the president or, another Or is the, president, is the president his conscience? Yeah, or decision-making mm. elements. It, it's an interesting one. And, and of course, if you're neutralising that, I, I, is that actually saying this isn't murder because this is actually you taking... Uh, He's taking absolute control of his of, own... Bo- of his, of, his, of yeah, himself. Of himself, yeah. yeah. By neutralising the elements that are holding him back. I mean, people, I think it's, it's very memorable, mainly because, because it came out in 68, mm. even though they filmed it in 67. Mm. It just it turned up bang on time. Yes. To sort of uh, as a parable for what was going on right then and there. One lovely moment is the evacuation starts, mm. and there are frogmen <laughs> for some inexplicable reason. Yeah. Some of them are running, and some of them are just pedalling on really <laughs> slow bicycles. <laughs> There's no sl- rush. Slow and steady. Slow and steady. You won't get there any quicker. Yeah. This is the question: Why? Why is the evacuation started? Is it because of the rocket? Is the the launch of the rocket going to destroy the village? Well, What's you the ass- logic behind that? I don't know. You, you kind of you you assume that I, I always assumed that that's what happened. That he, mm. that he fires the rocket and then he destroys the village because mm. that's what he wanted to do. Come back and wipe this place off the face of the earth. Mm. You don't you don't see it though. You don't see the village being destroyed. Mm. That's kind of my point, really. Uh, yeah, and I kind of think, is it because they couldn't afford it? Or, or maybe it was, was that sh- shrinking of Rover thing supposed to signify that? Mm. It's the end. He's, it's gone. I mean, you could, I mean, going back to what we just said before about neutralising, you know, if you're neutralising the village or you're neutralising those elements of your psyche, you know, that are holding you back, or doubts and fears and, you know, laziness and apathy and lethargy and all yeah. that kind of stuff. If, if you eliminate them, you will move forward or you will move on with your life when you escape as such mm. you know do these the, the villagers evacuating are they seeing the impending closure of the village because that microcosm will no longer exist yeah no no it's it's it's, it's a good point but I, I, I still don't quite it's in a, in a way there's a even though you're going at this allegorically that you are still thinking well, where the, where are they going and you need dramatic <laughs> tension as well of course yes you need a climax it is building up to something yeah, I mean, and, and it's also kind of, it's quite a Bondian climax. Yeah. It's, I mean, you've even got the ticking clock. And what we think also is a cameo by director Don Chaffee. You've, you've got this, and I think you're right. He had a very specific beard. Yes. And it was beautifully trimmed. And you see him sort of lift up and take off in a helicopter. Yeah. And I think that is him. And I think, do you know what? That's probably a little tribute from McGoohan. Well, I think the other thing is I, I contacted Rick David at the Mutual and I, I asked him, I said, could this be? Don Chaffee. Yeah. Uh, and Rick basically said that most of the helicopter footage was shot during the time of the arrival, or mm. arrival as it became, which of course was shot, uh, directed by Don Chaffee. Yes. So it's possible that's him going up to shoot sequences, the aerial sequences for arrival, maybe like the Dolman. You yeah. Know, Everybody's yeah. very now. All that kind of stuff. So there's, it's, you know, it's, there's a very strong possibility that's a director cameo. Yes. If you've um, seen the Elstree 50th Celebrations, which yeah. is available on DVD, I mean, I bought my copy from the prisoner shop. Yeah. Um, 
And it's basically lots of people involved. I think Eric Mivel's there. Alex Cox. Alex Cox, yeah. Uh, John S. Smith, Tony Sloman. So, you know, all these surviving yeah. <laughs> uh, crew members are there. And John S. Smith said that there were lots of helicopter shots in the can. And yeah. I mean, apparently there were loads of them. <laughs> so this could have been an excuse to get all yeah. those helicopter <laughs> shots used as well. Because they're not, as you know, helicopter fuel and uh, it's not cheap. No. You know, so they've done it all together at the same time for practical reasons, for cost reasons, and they would have shot it from different angles, from various aerial <laughs> shots to get their money's worth. So you can imagine, right, what's this real helicopter? Helicopter. Helicopter. No, helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get as much. Because you, you've got so many helicopters in there, including one shot where you see the prisoner's house in the Green Dome yeah. and everything behind it is kind of keyed out, blue screened out. Yes. So like this really fake blue, <laughs> which is really vibrant blue, isn't it, with just helicopters ascending. I, do you know, I really love that shot yeah. because it's, it's, it's such a recognisable scene, the uh, mm. setting, you know, the, um, the towers and Port Merion, and these, suddenly these choppers are there <laughs> and it just looks kind of... Where are they launching from? God no! Yes. <laughs> well, then probably maybe the, I mean, they've got a whole western set just to the left <laughs> yeah, and behind the Green Dome. Yeah. Pretty large. That's why they keep them. Yeah. Yeah, that didn't work. These are a hangar. <laughs> Number six, like you had all these choppers <laughs> all, all the time. God, and I can fly one of these things. God yeah. damn it! Here's <laughs> a hot wire one. It's nicer that when the truck escapes from the tunnel, it crashes through the gate at the same time the rocket launches. Yeah, I thought it was a nice little... Again, it's so, the, the editing in the show has been so wonderful. Mm. Isn't it? And, of course, the final thing is that it establishes the fact that the village can be anywhere. Yes. You know, yeah. in, this, in this instance, the, the tunnel leads to uh, the A20. <laughs> 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 but I mean, but um, you, there's a whole... It, you don't see it sort of driving off the tunnel onto the A20, sort of making no, a, true, true, making true, a true. left. Yeah, but it's the, not off the coast of Morocco or Portugal. Or, was it Lithuania? Or or Lithuania. Yeah. Yeah. All these places where in different episodes it contradicts its location. Yeah. It's because it doesn't matter. The, the village is everywhere. Yeah, the village it's not surrounded, wherever... surrounded by Nepalese mountains no. as it was in Many Happy Returns. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> the village is everywhere. You carry it with you. Mm. It's, it's part of who you are. So it doesn't really matter. Yes. You know, in Lost they did this. Is that the island jumps around the globe. <laughs> you know, one minute it's here and the next minute it's there. It's stolen from the prisoner, but they've taken it far too... To the nth degree. Yeah. And I think this is part of the problem with some of the spin-offs of the prisoner, whether they're, you know, um, audio or... Um, the novels. Novels and things like that, is that a lot of them really only concentrate on the spy elements mm. and not the allegory. Yeah, and I, I think they're just lesser works for it. They're doing... <laughs> kind of, kind of what I do in this podcast, which is to sort of make it a little bit. What if they actually did that? But really, they are. It's, it's uh, the village is an actual bricks and mortar place. Mm. Maybe if it, if it had worked, if they hadn't had Fallout, uh, and the novels were a continuation of the series. But you've had Fallout. That this is how it ends, mm. and and it's basically ta-da! It's all allegory. Unlike, you read into this what you want. Unlike Plato's cave, he's now escaped, mm. literally. <laughs> or, ha- yeah. or has he? Or has he? He's broken it. <laughs> they escape through a tunnel. The the analysis of this, the sort of yeah. Freudian aspects of this. Oh, and I see what so you mean. And the, yes, yes go the birthing a, canal. Yes, we're going yeah. through a slightly, sort of, yeah. perhaps a little bit or light juvenile. At the end, or light at the end of the tunnel. Or you could even see that as the, the light people see, allegedly, when they die. 
or people like these near-death experiences. They see this light like at the end of a tunnel. There's, there's loads of ways you can read that, really. Yeah, I prefer the, the slightly juvenile... Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the train not, into- maybe not so much birth, but rebirth. Yes, there's the whole I mean, the resurrection mm-hmm. aspect of number two. It's uh, well, Eric Marvel says that the you know that, that some of the dialogue uh, McKern's "I feel a new man" mm. was was biblically inspired. So maybe this is a, a you know a biblical element. Yeah, you know, I think you, I think there's more. I mean, he specifically said in the Troyer interview, it's, it's not. There's no mm. religion, but he, I mean that sort of. <sighs> I think if you've grown up in a Roman Catholic Irish family. Yeah, I, I think those moral lessons, those fables, those stories, those hymns, the, those sermons, those vespers are all part of who you they're are. They're stitched into the fabric exactly. of, you, of, of who you are, which is exactly. why, which is why I think he goes hard on himself for having take to resorted to violence. Mm. There's an old joke, isn't there? The sort of uh, my body's a temple. Well, it's not, my body's not a temple. It's like yeah. a Catholic church. It's full of bread, wine, and guilt. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it's. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, for all the the escape and the that catharsis, mm. at the end, he hasn't escaped. No, and it's almost like a punishment. I think maybe going back to the the religious element. I mean, when we talk about he's a man of steel, he's a superman. Mm. You know, maybe there's a kind of a subtle kind of link to Jesus mm. in this. You know, you've got this resurrection. You know, the, the, the famous story, and then retold in RoboCop. Uh, <laughs> Which is the same. It's a Christ story, isn't it? It is. He even walks on water towards the end of the film in the um, warehouse scene. There's yeah. loads of, of <laughs> comparisons, you know. And Clarence Bodica is Judas. Yeah. But there's, you know, there's the resurrection element. There's the Lazarus element. There's, there's so many biblical elements you could apply to this. Mm. But arguably there are the Jewish elements that you can apply to this as well. Yeah. I watched the Troyer interview last night and he, he uses the word resurrected, mm. which is... For, for, for a staunch Catholic, to, mm-hmm. you, you don't use the word resurrected for, for any other no, meaning. No. But the thing is, I mean, Christianity in, in the UK, where you have, you know, Methodist, you have Church of England, Church of Wales, you've got, you know, there's various different versions of the same religion, mm. you know, with the same iconography and the same people involved, like Christ, Mary. And Robocop. Robocop. <laughs> Saint Robocop of Chicago of Delta City Delta City sorry <laughs> and I'm actually wearing my I, I, I yeah. was going to say listeners he is wearing his last exit to nowhere OCP I'm proud and, and, and it looks great yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah so, so maybe not intentionally but it's all part of what's going on in Magoon's head about who he is the stories that he tells the, the, the music that he uses these you know, like things like Dembones, but also these uh, ditties, these childish ditties as yeah. well. What did Eric Meivel say about I, 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 I like you very much? Or yeah, 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 yeah. My guess is that simply when Eric Meivel was watching the scene where everyone's drowning him out saying mm. I, 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 there was a part of his kind of music catalogue brain would have thought, what's this reminding me of? I, I, I. He, probably, again, he probably ended up singing it to himself. But you've also got the dual meaning, haven't you, like we have with the assembly. I with and then A, Y, E. Yes. You know, so and, and I, 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 I... It's actually Yai, the Carmen yeah. Miranda. So, or, or Cowman Miranda for Gary Larson fans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a very... Oh, can you imagine sort of, do you know what this scene is missing? Mm. Bit of Carmen Miranda. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's so left field. Yeah, it, yeah it, it is. And it's, but it's also that that's the moment when, when Rover shrinks as well. Yeah. I, I've, I've struggled to read into... Well, going back to what we said before about all you need is love and about self-love. Mm. You know, if you can love yourself... 
you can be a stronger person. Yeah. If you have that respect, self-respect, moral attitude, you, you can be a stronger person or you can have a, a, a more kind of focused life experience, argu- yes. arguably. Love yourself first. There's plenty of quotes on that. And I, again, there's Freudian elements there as well. You know, I, 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 I like you very much. Yeah. You know, the, it links into the self-love as well. And of course, if he's escaped and he's neutralised these negative elements of his personality, of his psyche, he's now moving forward. And the three parts have come in together, or the four parts. And uh, Freud's ego has to deal with the external world as well, which is the village in this case. So now we've got, arguably, we've got our id and our superego and our ego and our body, if, if the butler represents the body, yeah. coming together as one to escape. Yeah. Do you think that... Do you think the fact that you don't see the village being destroyed is because you can't destroy it? Exactly. I mean, the, yes, I mean if, yes. if, if it is actually, it's not a physical place. If they built a model and done a proper sort mm. of super marionation exploding. Yeah, Ken sort of Adam yeah. design. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Seeing sort of the, the tower, clock tower just falling down that or something. It would have been epic. It would have been amazing. But you yeah. kind of think, well, hang on. If, McGowan's first thought would have been, hang on, uh, I've actually read the end of this episode. You can't mm. escape. So we can't show it being destroyed. Yeah. Because the argument is as soon as he leaves... It ceases to exist. Yes. that world has no more, there's nothing populating it anymore. Mm. But you carry it with you. Yeah. But, it's, but I, I like your theory about many happy returns in that respect. That when he's not in it... It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, that, because, yeah, because many happy returns, you can, you can you know, the, the logic, the real world logic can apply. But yeah. you can still apply the allegory to it as well, which is lovely. That's what I like about many mm. happy returns. And that's one of, arguably one of McGowan's... Seven episodes. Well, in the Howard Foy interview, he actually lists it. Right, okay. He does actually say there's, <clears> there's the, I think he couldn't work out whether... It doesn't mention Dance of the Dead. Mm. Uh, there's one missing. But then he gets on a big high horse about sort of other people saying that he said it's this seven. Well, it's not my seven. Yeah, which um, would have been the um, Matthew White and Jaffer Ali book. The, 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 the Prisoner Companion video, which he has mm. a particular dislike for. I think basically people just like, right, what was shot first? What did he direct? What did he write? Mm. That, that's his choice. But I guess we'll never really know. No, it's, it's been taken to his grave. Yeah. It's, do you know what? He, he kind of committed to this kind of uh, lack of answers. Mm. He never wrote a biography, an autobiography. No, no. In fact, he, he was asked in that Foy interview if he would ever consider it. And he, out of hand, no chance. Mm. He, was, he was simply not for answering questions. And, and yeah, if it, if on his deathbed it said it was all about yeah. the Greater London Council, yeah. well, just, I think there's two there's two ways you can look at that. You can look at um, there are answers there, but my answers are not your answers. Can you have to question what you see and interpret it, and and let that have an influence on your yeah, life. Yeah, your your participation within in answering these questions and and digging what we're doing here today, mm. that's part of the the process of enjoying it. Mm. Which is why it's. I mean, you don't. It's just, it doesn't just wash over you. Yeah. Uh, you have to be actively involved to to really appreciate the show. And the second way you can look at it is that he didn't know either. It depends which interview with him you watch. Yeah. <laughs> it might have been a stream of consciousness that he's getting out there, and he even and he says in the In My Mind documentary, you know, he started to see more and more as he's, you know, gotten mm. older. He he's found more meanings that he didn't even realize he put in there, essentially. So, we'll never know. Yeah. 
No, but that's the great thing. Yes, you just said if you if you give answers to a conundrum, it's no longer a conundrum. Yeah, and then it's kind of pointless. Yeah, and you, you might, give up you and you, might, you move you on. Might, you might as well just be an escapist action adventure yeah. show. But the thing, he could have given all the answers at the end of Fallout. It could have been a Bond type villain. It could have been, oh, this is why, this is what Rover is. Mm. But we wouldn't be talking about the show now. No, it would have been a curiosity from the sixties. Yes, Bond they remembered, maybe turned up on the network. Side, <laughs> yeah. But probably wouldn't have had an appreciation society. It probably wouldn't have had, you know, all these resurgences over the years that we talked about. Well, I mean, Dave Barry has said that without Fallout, the, the prisoner wouldn't be the prisoner. Mm. And I think he's right. I mean, he could have, it could have been a, a cloak comes off and it's, uh, it's, it's old Sean Connery. Yeah. Or it's, uh, or it's Doctor Who. Well, we asked him about that, didn't we? Yes, we did, yeah. Six of One founder, Dave Barry. Fallout's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it was it was McGowan making a real statement. Um, I went down to the Fallout tunnel before it was all kind of filled and bulldozed with all r- rubbish in it. Um, and I've got a photo of me at the tunnel entrance. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, it, when I saw it, I mean, when I saw it, I, I just thought, this is, I've never seen anything like this be before. Patrick throwing down the gauntlet and is saying, are you still with me? Yeah. Oh, yes, Patrick, we are. In my book, I score very conservatively with a maximum being five stars. When I get to write Fallout, it gets six because it just breaks the boundary. I, I, I think it's magnificent. Rick Davey of the Unmutual.co.uk. It's a work of genius, in my opinion. In so much of this, I agree with what Patrick always said. How else could he have ended it? He mm. couldn't have done the, you know, he's on interviewers saying, I whip the mask off and it's Sean Connery or Roger Moore as this kind of, oh, it was me all along. I'm, I'm head of the Secret Service. That, that would have been absolutely duff. Yes. It would have been the way Mark Stein would have ended it. A very straightforward yeah. kind of thriller. Because of what he does with Fallout, we, we, we have this allegory and we have this discussion that's lasted 55 years and hopefully will last another 55 years and will be discussed and, and, and looked upon long after we've gone, uh, which I hope isn't for a long time, but yeah, after yeah. we've gone, uh, the discussion still carries on. I think it's a work of absolute genius and it could only have come from the mind of Magoo and who I think was a genius. Again, you can pull holes in certain parts of it. You can do that with any episode. The Prisoner is what it is because of Fallout. I remember watching it when I was 10 for the first time and as I was by episode one, I was absolutely blown away by it. I couldn't believe that it was possible to make television or indeed film or any form of art that could grab your brain in the way that Fallout and The Prisoner as a whole does. I think it absolutely ties your brain in knots in a positive way and makes you think about the world around you. You know, only big news things like what's happening in Ukraine have the power to make you think about the world in a different way. For entertainment to do that is absolutely astonishing. For entertainment to teach you about what the world, you know, how the world is controlled and and what happens around you, I think is astonishing. I can't think of another piece of art in any genre that does it in the way that The Prisoner, because of Fallout, does. I think if you take Fallout away, you've got a nice, some nice episodes about how you know a spy has been imprisoned. I think when you add Fallout onto the end of it, it becomes a whole new thing. I think people that say, well, the last episode is an absolute load of rubbish. I can't believe they did that. I, I, I genuinely think, although they've obviously enjoyed the series, I don't think they fully understood it. And I don't mean to patronise or insult people by that. I think you either, The Prisoner either connects with you or it doesn't on that mm-hmm. level. Yeah. And it's fine if it doesn't. 
you know, the, the Prisoner can be watched in two ways. It can be it, it's a it's a brilliant spy show on its own. Um, although we never actually find out that he is definitely a spy, but you get my meaning. Yeah. You can watch it as a spy thriller, and it's brilliant as that. If you don't want any of the allegory, you can watch it without the allegory. But then that's when Fallout becomes a bit of a disaster because it doesn't fit with a straightforward spy thing. But if you want to just delve that bit deeper and watch it on a different level, well, you you won't get another series that does that. Twin Peaks kind of knocked on the door, but it it it, it wasn't anywhere near where the prisoner was. But but if people do just want to watch it as pure escapism, it does that as well. Now, so not only is it unlike anything else, it's also multifaceted. You can view it in two different ways. Mm-hmm. Not many shows you can do that. Star Trek is Star Trek. Mm-hmm. You can only view that as a as a science fiction enjoyable romp series. You can't view it Star Trek on a on a on a different level and watch it in a completely different way than pure entertainment. The prisoner you can watch twice. You can watch it once as entertainment. You can watch it once as, as learning about the world around you. Because the only people that can answer the questions are ourselves. And that's why it's great to have the Drake debate and uh, and, and the debate about whose side is the village on. Because there isn't, there isn't really a right or a wrong answer to any of those questions. It's all about individual interpretation. And that's what McGowan wanted. He wanted people to watch the episodes and at the end turn around to the person they were watching it or to go to work the next day or whatever. You know, the water cooler type conversation. Water cooler's not existing then, but yeah. to turn around to the person and say, what was that all about? And then for person B to say, well, I thought it was about this. And then for person A to say, did you? Well, I thought it was about this. And that's what's brilliant about it is that there is no right, there's only right answers when it comes to the production of the series. So when people say, well, Once Upon a Time was, was, was the second to last episode, well, yes, it was, but it was, was written early on. That, that's a production fact. You can't rewrite that and you can't interpret that. But anything that's interpretable, there isn't a really a right or a wrong answer. So if someone else comes on and passionately says that six is straight, they're not wrong. It's just a different viewpoint. Mm. And that's what you get when you watch Fallout. You get 100 different viewpoints. People think it's a load of rubbish. I, I totally support that view. It's not a view that I share. There were easier ways to end this, mm. but anything else, and I don't think we'd be talking about this. No, we'd be, you know, we'd have, we'd have enjoyed it. We'd probably think, do you know which one's that prison? Oh, hammer into Anvil. That's the that's the best episode. Nobody'd be talking about it in this. Nobody'd be discussing it. And it's what you know about again that Troyer interview. That was seventy eight. Yeah, seventy eight, He was saying there's already university courses mm. on the prisoner and uh, the audience was quite bookish you know uh, re- really really intrigued and all that stuff. but that was only t- 10 years after yeah. so within 10 years it's already sparked off the, the imaginations of yeah of- but don't, don't forget at the time there, there was arguably no such thing as fan culture until the 70s yeah you know in the 60s there weren't people I mean look at the things like Star Trek conventions didn't start till the 70s in the US mm. and then in Britain it was like mid to, to late 70s when that became a thing and they even they started as a small kind of church, church hall somewhere yeah. so you imagine someone like Magoon a serious actor serious artist he's created this years ago he's moved on since then you know, he's done Columbo, he's done Rafferty, he's done Escape from Alcatraz. And I, I want to see Rafferty. Yeah. Why? Can you get Rafferty? I don't know. But I'm going to have to find it. I think it's on YouTube. But, um, you know, he's moved on. He's doing other stuff now. And then suddenly he's in a room with all these people dressed like... <laughs> That's the the Mike Smith interview on Channel 4, oh, isn't it? Oh, God, got... I saw that as well. Poor Patrick McGowan. He was, 
So uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, to American view, listeners, you, anyone who doesn't know Mike Smith, Mike Smith is a Mike, DJ, wasn't he? And he's wearing this kind of glittery blue tie <laughs> with a stripy. But I mean, Mike Smith, the massive age discrepancy, the restraining order were the only thing standing in the way of me marrying Sarah Green. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll never forgive Mike Smith. You know, this fan culture was only really starting then. Yeah. When was that, by the way? Was that looked at, looked about the eighties, wasn't it? Early eighties. Yeah, the Mike Smith interview. Early eighties, wow! Yeah. But I mean, I mean, you look at look at fan culture now. Comic cons, yeah. yeah, you know, there was, there was one this weekend in Liverpool. Thousands of people turn up. Actors are there signing autographs and having their photos taken. You know, and it's that didn't exist back then. No, you my know, daughter went to one in Wrexham. Met Sam Jones from, oh, Flash, from Gordon. Flash Gordon. Yeah. I went to that one actually. Did you? The queue was huge for Sam J. Jones. For Sam J. Jones. So um, there was no queue for David Warner. Oh, you said yeah, how? So, could- so I went and, and had a, I spent about five, ten minutes having a chat with David Warner and got his autograph, you know, talked talk to him about, <laughs> he did Hamlet, and uh, we are just talking about things like that. And I think he really appreciates it. Yeah. <laughs> Who the hell are they queuing yeah. for? Um, that was, I think that was the one that I was talking to Jeremy Bullock. Uh, ah, yes, well. of course. Famous, of course. For, well, yes, for being the only person to properly play Boba Fett. Yeah. I just preferred Boba Fett when he was just somebody who, just, who occasionally just turned and looked at you. Yeah. And that, that was all he had to do was that, and he was the coolest yeah, guy. That goes he? back to the mystery box. It goes back to what we're talking about. If, yeah. if you start, if you have a character that has a mystery, that's much more interesting. It is. Once you say, oh, actually, it's a clone. He was a little boy, and you know, that's he takes his dad, and you know every single detail of who he is and where he's come from. He's not as interesting anymore. No. Well, William Goldman wrote about that in um, Adventures in the Screen Trade. Mm. He was talking about Rick from Casablanca. Mm. And you know nothing of him. There's no, no backstory. And you kind of, it's sort of, it's, it's fed in his past in, in, in Paris before mm. the war. Uh, all these little tidbits. But there's no sort of, uh, he walks out and then these two barmen talk to each other and say, what's his deal? What's his deal? Let me tell you about this guy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, the, but you come out of it, you just have to sort of, you have to piece him together yourself a little yeah. bit, and he's he's and, and at the end of it, you're still left with all these mysterious gaps. And some of the best uh, characters are that, though. Aren't but they? that's 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 what you want. You yeah. don't want to, and these all these kind of origin stories and sort of this interminable kind of ringing of the sort yeah. of franchise tea towel. Everything gets less interesting with each and that one. It adds more fuel to the Drake debate in that he's not John Drake from a a character construction point of view. He's much more of. A, an interesting character as being number six, the enigma. Yeah, I mean, you don't you, need to know who he is or who he was or his backstory. No, I mean, the little, in fact, it's as Rick Davy was saying, you kind of get to know more about him from Do Not Forsake Me and My Darling mm. than you do in the other but 16 arguably, episodes. Arguably, you can bin that episode. Well, yeah, but true, but it's, 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 it's little bits here and there. Mm. But apart from that, you only get to know him from his actions. Mm. And, you know, you, you get to work out, uh, well, he's probably a. Like I said, maybe he's, he's had naval experience because the way he can negotiate himself. He can fly a helicopter. Yes. And so, but it doesn't sit, it, there's no sort of, um, there won't be a sort of prisoner backstory series no. where you learned out how he learned to fly a helicopter yeah. and all this stuff. You don't need to. But you see that now with shows like Gotham. You see that, you know, where they, they oh. start to take the characters and show you. We're going to find out how the penguin became the penguin. Yeah. So do I, do, why do you need to know? It's yeah, we more don't. interesting. But the thing is, and, and of course, you can't kill them. No. <laughs> because you know that they survive. So there's no threat or danger. No, I, I always find that with, with prequels. Mm. You watch the Star Wars and well... <sighs> you know Obi-Wan Kenobi's not going to die. He's not going to... You know Anakin's going to become Darth Vader. You know when everything. You, when you, I, I, know, I mean, the single shining light 
glorious moments mm. in, in The Phantom Menace, really, is, is the three-way sword fight, fight with yeah, Darth yeah. Maul. But ultimately, you think, well, I know he's going to win this because Obi-Wan Kenobi cannot lose. No. He's, he's protected by the by future <laughs> knowledge. Yeah. So there's no real threat. We're just yeah. looking at gymnastics, yeah. essentially. And also, like we were saying with the prisoner, the whole point of the prisoner is what you bring yourself to it. Mm. Whereas these kind of things, is no, 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 sit back and be passive. I'm going to spoon feed you all yeah, the information yeah. that you're going to get. And we control that. But arguably, with the exception of maybe Dance of the Dead, he's never really in any mortal danger. Unless you count maybe many happy returns when he's when the gunrunners throw him over the side of the, the raft. Yeah, they took a bit of a risk on that. I yeah. mean, he, what if what if there was really choppy weather and he fell off his raft? Yeah. <laughs> this, <laughs> Rover would have shown up with his two, yeah, his two, his, his two minor balloons, <laughs> yeah. dragged him back to shore. Sorry, <laughs> we'll just wipe his memory. Yeah. That was a worthy, worthy he's, attempt. He's never really put in mortal danger, is he, by the village? No, but I suppose that's one of the reasons why Dance of the Dead sticks out in my memory. That mm. that scream as they're chasing after him, you think, actually, he could get what he could get yeah. killed here. One final little quasi-religious thing is that you know when he escapes he breaks out hmm. and you think well, break out that's that's really the title of the episode but fall fall out there's that sort of religious connotation of the, the fall it's how is it interpreted in, in catholicism or just christianity generally it's just the the man, man, man's kind of awareness of of his own Capacity for sin, or something. I suppose you've got. I mean, you've got the the story of Lucifer falling from heaven to become Satan. Yes, almost. But I mean, that's stretching it that's, a little bit. Unless you take the, the kind of hell uh, semiotics of the cavern. But yeah, I but don't know. Quite, I don't know if it. I don't think that's really. No, but I mean, as, I mean, yeah, but we're going almost pointlessly neat, uh, in, into this. But I think the the the, the fall of man was 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 Adam and Eve's moment of awareness that mm. they are capable of sin and then being punished yeah but human beings are fallible but they weren't up until that point mm. and so that's kind of kind of maybe where the fall aspect comes from maybe, maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm not i'm not <laughs> it's not a hill i'm prepared to die on. no no there's a little bit of cost saving in effect here is when the rolls bentley runs up against the the truck on the a20 yeah did you know that was actually mcgoohan's rolls bentley yeah rolls bentley yeah <laughs> that's <Flash>. his car <laughs> That's the moment where the establishment figure does the double take, isn't it? And they're dancing to. Do you think they? Do you think he leased it to the production company? Well, of course. I mean, as we know, we went to to do our station zebra to fund the rest of the episode. So any any opportunity to cost save probably where they use so many helicopter shots. Yeah, because they're already in the in the library. <laughs> we, the we already own these. Yeah, we need a car. Yes, just use mine. <laughs> there you go. Is the keys? Yes, I, I I love that scene. I think it's a fantastic bit of uh, just a, it's a gag, mm. but it's just some, it's so brilliantly shot the way it sort of slowly pulls and then you just, it's certainly what the, the the dance move that McGowan's doing, yeah. <laughs> the guy the guy in the roles can't see him. Yeah. It's it's just a wonderful, brilliantly staged bit of bit of tomfoolery. Yeah, there's a nice touch where he turns on the radio and of course it's Dem Bones, Dem Bones, yeah. <laughs> so what 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 do you think that's saying? What I, it's it's I think it's it's another reminder that you you've taken it's it's everywhere. Mm. He, he has it's maybe it's a, it's the it's the first indicator that he hasn't actually escaped. Mm-hmm. So he thinks he has, which was maybe why they're dancing. They're they're, they're elated. Mm. They're having a wonderful time. And can I remember Canna saying they they were genuinely having a fantastic time. He said that was one of the most fun days work he's ever had. But that's the first indicator, mm. I think, isn't it? That it's it's uh, you've, you've not escaped anything. So they drop off. Canna number forty eight. Yes. There's a lovely touch here because he gets out off the truck 
And basically, he crosses the road. He's thumbing one way, then he crosses the road, and he's thumbing the other way, mm. which suggests he doesn't know where to go. Yeah. So he's thumbing to go in one direction, changes his mind, and then goes to thumb a lift in another direction, which ties in with what the president was saying about youth being uncoordinated. Yeah. Has no sense of direction. He described, describes him as a stray, which is a patriarchal kind of way of looking at youth. He's mm. gone astray. But he, that's, that's what I thought when I saw that scene. He, has, he, he doesn't really know where he's going. No, and I see that as uncoordination mm. of youth, which is what the president says, but also having no sense of direction as a child. Yeah. You know, yeah, or yeah. a young person. You know, the, the, young people just live in the present. You probably well, yeah. notice this. They don't think about next week or the week after or plan ahead oh, gosh, like do, we do. Do, do you remember that? Yeah. We, remember live, days? we live in the present, the future and the past. We wallow in our nostalgia. We plan ahead for holidays and meetings and all that kind of stuff. But we also live in the present as well. But young people generally just live in the present. Well, that's that's the whole beauty of it. You don't have to think about sort of, uh, well, God, if I don't do this, I won't be able to afford my mortgage payments. But that ties in with being uncoordinated, yeah, being yeah. directionless. And I love it's a lovely little moment where he is thumbing a lift to go one way and then swaps to be, to go the other way. Mm. I, I love that. And it's so subtle, but it's so clever. Yes. Well, you kind of have to think, if, if he filmed it, there's a, there's a point. Mm. It's not a... Well, should we just get rid of Canner at this point? <laughs> then we don't have to take Well, him. they wouldn't get rid of Canner because did you know that the intention, apparently, was for Canner to continue the series? Yes, yes, he mentioned that. In fact, Anthony Briley from Six of One, Port American organiser, has a little bit of information regarding that. Ah, after you, Ant. Yeah, I remember Alexis Canner giving an interview, I think it must have been a few, back in the mid-2000s, where he said... You know, there was plans to do a follow-up series, which would kind of follow the way Alexis kind of explained it. It would be essentially the village outside the village, so it would literally follow Alexis Canner's number forty-eight as he globe trotted around the world. Yeah. And but it would be essentially the, the village outside of the village, and literally as he's you know globe trotting the world, he's literally at every point he's. He's being followed and he's battling the village. So the opening scene would be, I think it was the Rome Olympics was the next one at the time, I think he said. And it would literally be the marathon of the Olympics. And it would just literally pan back across all the runners. And at the back of the pack would be number 48 and the little butler running along, <laughs> being chased by potentially you know, a hearse with an undertaker in it. So... Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Unfortunately, that's it, it never got beyond the planning stage. <laughs> Alexis was kind of, he was keen on kind of to doing it, but 2003 was my first convention. So he was literally the first person involved in the prisoner I ever met. So, and I, he had some, he had some health issues at the time, but even so it was kind of the show must go on sort of thing. He would literally just, he'd answer any question, speak to anyone, even though he was, obviously struggling but he wouldn't let it affect him he was just so you know, so giving and just wanted to interact with as many people as he could that is a kind of one thing i've noticed a lot of the people involved who come as guests really want to meet the fans and get involved and talk to people and now we're at westminster yes mckern elopes um <laughs> the semiotics of course the establishment symbol uh, and we actually hear the chimes of big ben Yes, finally, the real ones. Which is a lovely touch. 
Yeah, it would have been nice for them for it to just cut out. Yes. <laughs> but no, I think it's important because obviously with the episode Chimes of Big Ben and then you've got McKern in front of the Houses of Parliament and Big Ben, a lot of people don't realise that Big Ben isn't the clock. A lot of... Um, it's, the, it's the bell. It's the bell, isn't it? Is it um, Elizabeth's Tower? Oh, oh, I can't tell you. I just, I just know Big Bill. But yeah, it's coming up to your favourite part now, aren't we? Yeah, I thought. Ah, I wonder if I've amassed enough critical nous to finally tackle this and go work on, out what go on. this is. Let's, let's see your interpret. Let's hear your interpretation. Chris, answer came there none. Do you know what, what the hell is going on? What's he saying to him? What's the What's the dance doing? Why isn't the policeman arrested him? I just I just like the visual comedy of this. I do, and I love I love the the setup as well with Muscat yeah. with his back to us, just stock still. It's a fantastically framed shot. But, but the, I just I have no I'll, idea what it means. I'll give you a reading of that, which has just come to me. <laughs> okay. in a flash of inspiration. McGowan famously didn't give explanations for the prisoner. He lets out little bits of information. Yes. And if he was to give it, you all this on a plate, yeah, it wouldn't yeah, mean yeah. anything. And I love the fact that he's explaining to this policeman in this kind of overt mime-style performance. Yes. You know, and he's he's using you know frantic hand gestures and movements to suggest the episode uh, narrative of what's happened in the episode up to that point, and he's trying to explain it in a visual way. And the policeman is basically just looking at him, and it's almost like a link between explaining the episode fallout to the policeman <laughs> and the policeman not understanding. And it's quite—I think—that's quite clever. Is that? He's not going to give you the answer. He's not going to explain. And he's going to give you a very basic explanation in, in movement and in frantic. I, I, <laughs> I will explain through interpretive dance. Yes. But there's another nice touch there. Do you notice the, the framing of the butler? Yes. It was enormous. Mm. And the other two are small. Yes. Yeah, I'll take that. Okay. That's what it means. Fair enough. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> And then the fantastic scarpering onto the bridge to catch the bus. Yes. With, with, Holding his hand. You've never seen Angela Muscat run so fast. Bless him. <laughs> and then, of course, the return to Buckingham Place. Yes. Which I've always thought, it's, it's just one letter off Buckingham Palace, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've said before, haven't we? I wonder how much mail, yeah. how much prisoner fan mail the Queen gets. I just, do you know what? I was in London, and I can't remember why I was there. It was near Victoria Station. I remember just walking down the street and seeing Buckingham Place on the wall and but, thinking, where, but, where do I know that <laughs> name from? And then I saw that, I was like, oh. I know. They should actually, they should, they should buy. They should put blue plaque up. Well, they should buy a Lotus Seven yeah. and nail it to the floor. <laughs> so it's it's not it's, it's like the the uh, there's that seat in uh, Liverpool where mm. Eleanor Rigby's yeah. there's a statue sat yeah. on the bench. They should have this immovable yeah. uh, Lotus outside that house. There's a forever. Petition, there's a petition there to get a blue plaque. Is there? Yeah. No, there should be. Well, it should be. That would yeah, surely already be there. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it massively important. And then, of course, the thing that everybody picks up on yes. is the door it's automatically the door. opening, which. Uh, Worth mentioning that mm. number six doesn't see. He's, he's driven off. Mm. So the only one to actually... He doesn't, he's not aware the village is everywhere by yeah. this point. He's, he's actually... He's, he's blind yeah, to Yeah, but it. a lot of people read that as, oh, the village are one step ahead of him and they've... you know. Oh, no, 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 no. Of course no, not. No, no. no. no it is, as you say, it's a reminder. You take the village with you. Yes. You know, you can never escape. You are never free. Freedom is a myth. You know, we're not truly free. But should we be truly free? If we were truly free, there'd be chaos. Yeah, anarchy. Yeah, people I'd be going around killing people like a Mad Max style. Yeah, I don't. I don't think McGowan is. I mean, he says yes, rebellion is necessary every now and then. But I, 
um, Kenneth Griffith's description, a gentleman rebel. Mm. I think that sums him up. I think he, it goes back to that point you made in the first episode, which is Ace, when he drives up to the, the barrier, which he could quite easily drive under, mm. but he doesn't. He stops because he's supposed to stop and he pays. Mm. He could get under there for free and break the law, but no, he's a rule, he plays by the rules mm-hmm. and he doesn't mind. But he just wants to be left alone and have society give him the courtesy of mm-hmm. allowing him to be who he wants to be. He's not. He's not for anarchy. He's not no. for 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 you know destruction. I mean, you could even from this point. I mean, we've talked about Plato. We've talked about Freud. You can even now go into people like Immanuel Kant. You can go into ethics mm. here if you wanted to. You know, utilitarian ethics, meta ethics, all these branches of normative ethics. You can apply virtue ethics, things like that. They can all be applied to the prisoner as well, in that his moralistic intentions, his virtue ethics are always consistent until fallout, yeah. really, yeah. which then becomes meta. It becomes, now I'm going to take the ultimate step. I'm going to commit violence yes. in order to achieve the results. But I, th- I think that uh, my theory that he, he's, it, it plagues him that. Mm. And I, I think that he's, he only thinks he succeeded mm. by using violence. He thinks that's how he's done. But he's, at, the, at the end, he knows, we know, he hasn't. And I think that there's no victory through violence. No. I think that's almost like the point. No, absolutely. I think people just see this as a as downbeat ending, and I don't think it is. I think, yes, he has achieved what he set out to achieve. He has become, he has escaped that village, but he hasn't escaped the greater village. Mm. You know, you can escape a society, but you can't escape the limitations put on you by yourself and the world and all these various authority figures, whether they're parents, they're teachers, they're government officials, they're bosses at your job. You can never really escape that. Yeah. And then you've got the fact that it, it ends on a circular note. It, mm. it, it, start, it ends at the beginning of the, it, everything just goes round and round and yeah. round, which is... Which is implied, is not... It's implied, but it's, it's, to me it sounds like a, it's almost like a warning. Mm. It's not so cynical as saying sort of, uh, and at the end of the day you'll have learned nothing and you're going to go back mm. to square one and... Start again. Yeah, but that's, that's not maybe indicative of the individual. Maybe that's indicative of society. Yeah, but I think we, we doomed to repeat ourselves on the mistakes of history. Yeah, but I think it comes across more as a warning that if you don't pay attention to all these things I've said, yeah, mm. this this is the end. I've been I've been threading the last seventeen episodes mm. with all these. Are you going along the lines that because he incited violent revolution, this is a punishment that he has to? I think well, I think that's an element, but I don't think yeah. that's the point. No, I know I, I totally agree. I don't think it is. I think I think I think the point is that if you don't stop and consolidate what we already have, mm. and then move on slowly because we're progressing too mm. fast. You're doomed to repeat yourself. You, yeah. All this, you'll learn nothing. You'll get to the end and then start again. I don't think it's kind of we're doomed to do this. Mm. I've started listening to another splendid uh, podcast. The rest is history, mm. which is absolutely wonderful. But the more you hear these stories, going even going back from to ancient Romans, Carthage, and, and the twentieth century, mm. you realise with depressing awareness that we're. We don't learn, and and we're nowhere near as forward as we think yeah. we are. We we kind of dazzle ourselves with our technological. Yeah, I mean, you you wouldn't you wouldn't, you wouldn't have, can you imagine what if we'd have had iPads back then, but it's just a gimmick. As human beings, we're paranoid. We're we're, we're afraid. We're fearful. Well, I mean, have you ever been to Pompeii? No, no. So Pompeii at the time was like the peak of technological yeah, yeah, achievement. Yeah. 
I mean, the, there are blocks in the road where they could open a sluice and clean the roads at night. So you would stand on the blocks, so you wouldn't get your feet wet. But the blocks have these little cuts in them, so carts can pass through. Genius. You know, they had fast food restaurants. <laughs> I'm not even joking. No, I know. You, you basically just go in and there's these, like, counters with... Uh, Holes in where they will put bowls and fresh fruit and. You used to get a sort of a, a tiny, um, a tiny vase instead of a yeah. Happy Meal uh, gift. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, uh, ancient Greeks, the Romans, you know, that was the peak. I mean, some people argue that was the peak of civilization. Yeah. I mean, obviously there are downsides, and, you know, but <laughs> you know, and a bit too much slavery. <laughs> yeah, but yes, and uh, <laughs> killing of. Uh, there was that. Christians. The and infanticide the, was a little bit But, you know, they, they invented the central heating system. They developed our roads. I mean, most of our roads today are built on the Roman roads. But apart from that, what of the, have the ancient Greeks <laughs> ever done for us? But my, my point is we've not really moved on from those technological achievements that the no, Greeks I, and I, the Romans I, I, I think, I think we, 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 we like li- to think we, we, we lie to ourselves yeah. that we are this enlightened. I mean, look at the way, look at the way things are going. That, um, I don't want to get political or anything but some of the stuff that's happening in america right now mm. is like well now let's 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 revert let's go back let's mm. uh, let's let's go back to there's always this weird desire to go back it always seems to be the 50s let's mm. go back to that's the same as hams in britain as well uh, yes yeah, so, but it's, it's kind of happening everywhere but it's mm. like why aren't you going forward yeah and why aren't you going forward in an enlightened way Oh, I've, I've seen people on twitter say oh the 70s were great and there's a lot of these websites you know these like oh, do you remember these yeah. <laughs> do you remember, do you remember uh, Space Hoppers? Weren't they great? All well, that kind of stuff. It's like well, a Peter Kay. Yeah, to- <laughs> toys were better. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is- yeah, but you, but the thing is, it's it's a false memory. Because, yeah. Yeah, 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 there's fondness from nostalgia. But, you know, the 70s weren't the best time to live in. No, they were you ghastly. Might, yeah, you might have fond memories, but you're kind of filtering out all the dark stuff that happened. Yeah, but which, which you know, kids today will be doing the same thing yeah. in, in 30 years. But oh, that's a natural thing, isn't it, of parents, grandparents, looking at kids today and go, oh, kids today, they don't know the ball. When I were a kid, I had a spinning top and a bit of wool. <laughs> it's, it's that kind of... You're, you had wool as well. I had wool, yeah. <laughs> but you, you know what I mean? You know yeah, what I'm yeah. saying? It's, it's, it's this kind of progressive generations who are coming in and... It's despair about yeah. how they behave. There is an argument to say yeah, we can see why you're looking that way, but there's a lot of good from young people as well. Of I, I see that every day. Yeah, yeah. They, young people never fail to amaze me. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I've, like you, we've got uh, young kids, and uh, yeah, as, as much as I mean, just she could tidy a room once yeah. a year would be <laughs> would be nice. But you know, some, it's it, the stuff they come out with, mm. and not just kind of hilarious lines, but mm. just you know stuff you found out they've done. They're just a constant source of, yeah. of surprise and pleasure. And I think young people they get a bad rap, especially from some of the older generation, because they they use their phones or because they're you know creating these TikToks. There's an argument there. There's a lot more creativity. I mean, look at what they create for things like TikTok and yeah. uh, YouTube and things like that. Some fantastic creative examples genius in some cases that they're allowed to express themselves in that way but of course naysayers will go oh they're always on the phones oh it's rotting the brain oh no wonder that everything's dumbed down for them Uh, and yet (laughs) yeah i don't know there's there's i I always seem to find that there's 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 your story my story and there's the truth yeah two people pointing at the number six ironically and somebody sees it as a six, somebody sees it as a nine, but they're both right. Mm. It just depends on which point of view you look at it from. 
quite right. Mm. Did you notice Angela Muscat gets double credits? Yes, yes, that was nice. Yes. He's the only one as well, isn't he? Because he's not really had much of a credit before. <laughs> and yet he's, obviously, as we know, he's not in every episode, but he doesn't even get yeah. a credit in, in any of the episodes he's in, apart from the end credits. Whereas this, he gets an on-screen credit. Yeah, which is a first. Yeah, Alexis Canner. Angela Muscat. Prisoner. Leo McKern. Yeah. And then, of course, in the end credits with the Penny Farthing. He, yeah, he's in there he's as there well. there again with Peter Swanick. I wonder if you've got double bubble for that. So, yeah, so McGowan doesn't get the on-screen credit. I mean, every single episode, pretty much, obviously, apart from uh, the ones without the, the usual standard titles, which say Patrick McGowan, has to have his name, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Whereas this one starts with the recap and then the, you know, the fallout, the aerial shot. So we don't have the standard opening for this episode. So McGowan's name is not really mentioned only in the uh, written exactly. and directed by. yeah. And the executive producers. Yeah. But instead, he, he gets prisoner. Not the prisoner. Yeah. Prisoner. Yeah. What thoughts do you have on that? The door has just closed by itself. And I think that if you didn't, maybe if he missed that, here's another clue. Yeah. He's, he's, he's out, he's escaped, he's driving around free as a bird, prisoner. Mm. He's not, he hasn't escaped, he's, st- he's still in prison. Yeah. The, 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 lack, and the lack of the, I suppose, it just remove. it makes it more, I don't know, just removing the definite article. I guess it's just a, a, a subtle way of pulling yeah, the... Yeah, re- a prisoner rather than the prisoner. Yeah. There's and another it, way to look at it, and we've talked before about Magoo being number six. Just a theory. Yeah. And that's based on his, you know, trying to resign from uh, Danger Man, trying to get out of it, can never escape celebrity, the cult celebrity. Even when he's off camera, he's still being recognised. He's still being treated like Drake. Mm. You know, who is he as an actor? He's played all these different roles. And yet, who is the real Patrick McGowan? It's like Peter Sellers. Who was Peter Sellers? He was all these different characters. There is no Peter Sellers. Yeah. I had him surgically removed. Yeah. He's, he sees himself as a coat hanger. He sees himself yes. as, yeah. you know, all these dis- different personalities that he plays. He's a prisoner of, of himself. He's a prisoner of celebrity. I see it that way. McGowan's not explicitly credited. Prisoner. Patrick McGowan. That's mm. who I am. I'm actually saying I am the prisoner. Yeah. That's another way of reading it. And of course, lots of people will be going, no, I don't, I don't buy that. And that's fine, because that's just a reading of it. Yes. But, but you can go back. I mean, you go, going back to the dr- dreamy party, um, <laughs> where he changes the, yes, the camera. He, yeah. You know, it changes that, the view of the that's world. That's so meta. That's like, I'm actually controlling what you're seeing, be seeing you. Mm. There's so many allusions to Patrick McGowan in this. Not just the birth date, not just, you know, what he's done in the past, the danger man elements, the publicity photo usage, all that kind of stuff. It's arguably blatant. This is about him. This yeah. is about Patrick McGowan. But he's opened it up to say, project yourself onto this as well. I'm the everyman. I'm playing you. I'm, I'm, this is my take on the human condition from Patrick McGowan's perspective. Yeah. Arguably, if you're ever to do a proper prisoner remake, you forego all these iconography elements which, unfortunately, the 2009 one basically tried to just kind of go into the spy or the, I think it was a computer simulation, wasn't it, at the end? Or all that <laughs> it was like a stuff. pharmaceutical oh, kind of complex. Anyways, less said about that, the better. I agree. Let's, <laughs> let's never speak of <laughs> it again. Enjoyable moments. But the yeah. thing is, this should be about one person and their statements on the world. Yeah, but, you know, I think, again, one of the reasons why it's lasted so well is that he's, 
all these kind of warnings and the the his his takedown, the negative kind of aspects of mm. being human, and all our failures. He's 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 being hard on himself. Mm. Is it, if it was a more sort of stand, standing on a, a soapbox hectoring people, mm. you know how people you know there's that natural. I think it's everywhere, but particularly in Britain, when somebody says you need to stop doing this, you mm. need to do this instead, you instantly go, "I will do the opposite," mm. because you're telling me and I, your, your tone, sir, frankly. Whereas here, he's being very honest and, and hard on himself, yeah. and there's something kind of endearing about that. He's, I'm, I'm not the guy you should be following here. I'm, I'm just as fallible, just as weak, and uh, and it's these these are my problems as mm. well. But I share these with everyone. We're we're all we're all in, in this boat. Something that we, we talked about off uh, audio with Dave Barry about was uh, the strange world of Gurney Slade. Yes, which Anthony Newley produced in the early sixties. And I've also read that McGowan was influenced by that in, when he sold the idea to Lou Grade. So from the Andrew Pixley book, it says. In an early morning private meeting with Lou Grade, McGowan expounded an idea he'd been toying with since the same time Anthony Newley, another leading man who couldn't abide the path of fame down which he was herded, <laughs> came up with Gurney Slade. Grade couldn't make head nor tail of the pitch, but McGowan's ambition and the charming images of Port Marion, his location of choice previously used in an episode of Danger Man, sold it. Ah, uh, Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. I had no idea. Dave Barry mentioned it. I'd never heard of it. You had. You already I had it on DVD. DVD yeah. Oh, you believe The Prisoner's a remake? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's an even more meta reference because he mm. basically, Anthony Newley, walks off his own show. Mm. He <laughs> resigns. Yeah, and it's, yeah, but it's he kind of resigns from celebrity. Yes. And then can't. But, but just, that's my reading of The Prisoner. Now we've had this opportunity to sit here for, you know, 22 weeks. Yes. And... and really kind of investigate this more on the allegory side i see this now more of a as, as a kind of fingers up to television the fingers up to to celebrity mm. you know and maybe the sense of purpose of who mcgoohan was or how he felt you know he wanted to be his own man and he was expected to play all these roles these different people yes and, and that he, must be hard for an actor yeah and he'd had it i think he was he's, he kind of wanted out i mean i mean I mean, he left. He left Britain after this, mm. and uh, whether it was because of the reaction or not, I, I think I'm not 100 no. percent sure about that. I think he's most people's careers inevitably drift Hollywood way yeah. if you're an actor or a director, and he was probably just getting better offers. Yeah, but he wasn't really when he went to America. He didn't become a megastar, or you know, the amount of work. I mean, it was pretty no. sporadic if you look at his IMDb page. Yeah, Columbo. It's... He was directing, of course. You know, a couple of films like yeah, Catch My Soul and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Kings and Desperate Men with Alexis Kammer. Yeah. Rafferty. Uh, Escape from Alcatraz, where this time he plays a number two type character, doesn't he? Which is absolutely brilliant. I yeah. mean, that's, 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 that's proper stunt casting. Yeah. Uh, and he was fantastic in it. Yes. Do you know what? I mean, I was watching the, the, watching the Troyer interview and then Escape from Alcatraz about the same time. He got, he got old quick. Yeah. He th- he didn't look well. Mm. I th- I think this absolutely took everything out of him. The prisoner. I think he put so much into it, and we've documented um, big falling out with with everyone's stress. Mm. Canna says about fallout. It was literally and figuratively the series' last hour. People were totally cracking up, mm. and I think he is. 
I, I think he never again took it upon himself to to burden himself with such a huge project. No. I think he was kind of you know what I've I've made my statement. And of course, I mean, he had a, a little bit of a resurgence as such in uh, the 1996 film Braveheart. He's working with Mel Gibson. He had a, and then I think the same year he was in um, Time to Kill as the judge. Yes, he was. Yeah. Well, accent. There's <laughs> a lovely little link with where we live, with Braveheart, because oh, he yeah. portrays Edward the First. Yes. Longshanks. He wasn't all good. No. <laughs> no, he wasn't. But he builds but he, he, yeah, all the castles around our way: Conway yeah. Castle, which we can see pretty much from here; Carnarvon Castle. Um, he built. He built, yeah, as, as English strongholds. Not Patrick McGowan, just pointed. Yeah, Patrick- King Edward the First, yes. <laughs> no, he Edward the First made his mark on on North Wales. That's for sure. And so did Patrick McGowan. Yes, he did. God bless him. Scores for Fallout. Wow. <laughs> Do you know what? I've I've been I've been umming and ahhing about this because I'm in a way. It, it kind of reminds me of Res Lost Dark when they say mm. right and. Take back one, Kadan. Um, it's a sort of I'm almost like loath to give it a six. I kind of Why? want to sort of take away. What is it that's holding you back from a six? Uh, it's I don't, I, I don't know. I just it it just seems like too. I, I kind of almost want to reward it for its own sort of glorious imperfections <laughs> by honouring it by taking away a star in a way. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, it it almost seems too. You're kind just of, overcomplicating things. I am. It's a six. It for is me. a six. It's isn't a it? six yeah. for me. <laughs> <laughs> so just two episodes left to go. Yes, yes, we got there, Chris. We managed. Yeah. We got to the end. Well, we've got a special episode next week on the literary prisoner. Yes. So fact or fiction, the literary prisoner. So we've been looking at some of the factual books. So, such as the official prisoner companion, uh, the French, yeah, I mean, the French book. There's a, there's a, I mean, there's a, a library. Oh, of, Ian Rakoff. Uh, it's you, you could, you could fill a shelf with yeah. this, and we're going to talk about some of these and some of the, some of the better ones. We'll be chatting a little bit to, uh, to Robert Fairclough, mm-hmm. bringing him in again. We'll also look at some of the fictional books, so the content like the Thomas Dish uh, yes. book, and Shattered Visage. <laughs> yes, and yeah, also Prisoner's Dilemma. Yeah, if you've enjoyed this podcast, or if you if you're a prisoner <laughs> fan and you want to basically further reading, yes, uh, because there's plenty out there, and then there'll be a little episode, our, our wrap up episode, because that's our 24 episodes. That's then, isn't that's it? that's the lot. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure in the future, maybe we'll maybe get get ourselves over to the six of one convention or something, or yeah. go to Port Mary. We'll do, do some specials. We'll do. There'll be, yeah, there'll yeah. be a few. It's little, not the end. But no, you haven't seen the last of us. So I think for our final episode, we're going to talk about uh, our preferred order. With justification, correct? Yeah, yes, that's exactly right. Uh, I think various. I think the Sci-Fi Channel have got their running order. Yeah, Somebody else yeah. got their. We we are going to put together the free for all running order. Well, we've got Six of Wands running order. There's Young Mutuals running order. Well, yeah, our turn. So we're gonna we're gonna put ours together, and uh, we may call upon you for help with that. But yes. um, we shall see. But uh, until then, thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next week. Free For All podcast was presented by Kai Ross and Chris Bainbridge. The theme tune was by Gordon Milton, and special thanks to Jemima Duncar for the artwork. Please see you. You can find us on Twitter at Free For All Pod or on Facebook at Podcast Free For All. <laughs>